0: O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether, and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies, that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm John Teeter. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I'm fortunate today to have a great guest on and hopefully a recurring guest, Tim Russell. Tim Russell is a friend of mine and uh, a great steward of deer hunting. He's a certified forester with a bachelor's degree from SUNY ESF in Syracuse, New York. He's got a strong background in wildlife management and he's worked on a lot of different properties. He's a level two deer steward and formerly a QDMA employee. Tim has his own business, Green Fire Forestry and Wildlife Services, which he started in 2019, and he also provides uh, habitat consulting throughout the Northeast. Tim is just a great guy, and I think you're going to learn a lot from him over the next several years, and he really focuses a lot on managing timber, and we're going to talk about that today, and I'm really thankful for for Tim on the podcast. Welcome, Tim. Uh, Happy to have you on, and uh, let's just kind of talk a little bit about you briefly, and then uh, let's get into the topic. So uh, why don't you give a little background of uh, just kind of where you're at today, projects that you're working on, just a little bit about you.
0: Sure. And uh, thanks for having me on, John. I've been looking forward to it. For folks listening, uh, I'm not a, a master hunter. I'm a, what you call an adult onset hunter. Uh, I don't have uh, nearly the experience or the trophy collection that John does, um, But that's part of why I enjoy our conversation so much, because I know a good deal about land management and how to work with vegetation, how to create structure and composition that meet the the requirements of deer or other wildlife. Uh, But John knows a whole lot more about deer movement and habits and where to place stands and how to arrange those resources in a way to uh, maximize your hunt. So I I always have fun talking, Um, working on a few projects right now, some of them are, you know, thinning commercial timber harvests or writing new forest management plans. Got a couple that uh, were looking to get some clear cuts put in to create some uh, woodcock slash rough grouse nesting areas that will probably serve as a uh, good whitetail cover as well. So some different irons in the fire, certainly. And, uh, you know, uh, really was looking forward to this particular uh, topic, uh, thinning your woods, thinning your timber. I guess, are uh, you ready to get into it a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the title of this uh, particular podcast is going to be Thin Your Woods for Fat Deer. Tim came up with it, so uh, I'll, I'll give him the pleasure and opportunity to explain what that means. But, you know, we're going to focus on managing uh, timber, in this case, for wildlife. It's not going to be so much focus on commercial uh, adventures, but more kind of thinning your timber for wildlife. So we're going to focus there. Tim, maybe you want to start step into this and talk a little bit about the different uh concepts and in this case we're going to talk about forest stand improvement more specifically but maybe you want to kind of just diagnose the differences between thinning timber for silviculture purposes or in this case we're going to focus on wildlife just just briefly
0: sure and i think it would help maybe if i went over a few definitions um as well you know when we were picking a title we talked about whether to reference timber stand improvement forest stand improvement thinning your timber you know whether to say timber wood so Um, You know, folks out there, you might have heard the term thinning. In these cases, we're not cutting heavily enough to regenerate the stand. It's not really aimed at establishing, you know, a new cohort of seedlings. But we're working with the crop that's already there by removing a portion of the trees, essentially, in order to reduce crowding. Um, Now, traditionally, timber stand improvement is something that, you know, this process was used to reduce crowding and enhance the production of commercial products. And usually when timber stand improvement is used as a phrase, we're talking about pre-commercial or non-commercial cutting. It might be a first cut, or maybe they're just low-quality trees, so it's not really a harvest. Forest stand improvement, and then I consider that to encompass TSI, is a similar concept. You know, typically we're talking about a non-commercial thinning. uh, But using the phrase forest stand improvement, we recognize that that thinning can enhance conditions for goals other than just timber, and in this case, namely wildlife. And, you know, as a side note, when you do have a commercial timber harvest, um, a good forester is always thinking about the residual stand, what's being left behind, not what's being taken out. And, you know, of course, if if you go to school for forestry, they train you in ways to do that so that the residual stand can accrue value as as far as timber goes. But we also recognize that thinnings of, of that kind have a great benefit to wildlife and You know, sometimes there are ways that we can adjust that thinning in a way to benefit wildlife even more. So, you know, some of those things, particularly relative to whitetail deer, enhanced acorn production in the case that you have the the ability to work with oaks, stimulating undergrowth. We want to be careful about what plants we release in the understory as well. We don't want to let a whole lot of invasive plants come in, Um, but certainly if you have woods that are continually being thinned and you've got, you know, in the understory coming up, blackberry and red raspberry and pokeweed and even goldenrod um you know you've got some forage you've got some cover and that's all really good stuff kind of a side benefit depending on the timing of it um is actually having some tops laying around in the woods during hunting season shortly after they've been cut you know sometimes uh with logging we look at time of year cutting restrictions for hunting season and sometimes that can help uh, if, if there's active logging, yeah, that, that often does scare the deer away, but it doesn't take very long for them to find out that there's a whole bunch of, you know, tops on the ground they, and they, they come in and they hang out in there and they get some food. And, you know, also in kind of a short term sense that can offer quite a bit of cover. You know, just two days ago, I was walking a logging job. that was all cleaned up to see, you know, how the trails looked and all that walking through the open woods, wasn't seeing any deer. You get into the harvest area that they had just finished cutting that week and there's tops, you know, treetops piled up and I'm chasing deer out of them. So there are some immediate benefits. There are some long-term benefits. And um, really one thing I would say is that if you've, for one, if you've got a significant portion of forest on the property that you manage for whitetails, you've got, you really need to manage the forest. It's it, it's something that uh, it, it can't go ignored. And with that in mind, if you have a forest that's been managed using, whether it's commercial thinning or, or timber stand improvement, and it's really focused on timber and not wildlife, you are miles ahead of somebody who just doesn't cut their woods at all, because you're going to get a lot of those benefits. So let, like, for example, if you had an oak stand and you were thinning it and it wasn't for acorn production necessarily but the healthiest most vigorous oaks are being left behind the the range of stocking level that you would aim for for a timber thinning is pretty similar to the the stocking level range that you would aim for if you were thinning specifically with mass production in mind now there might be some different in which trees you actually select maybe if you don't have very many white oak you might leave a gnarly looking white oak that otherwise isn't going to make a very nice saw log tree but still you know doing that and having that cutting it goes a long way. And then, you know, you look at it a little bit differently in terms of which are your crop trees. Are there trees that are of a benefit to wildlife, even if they don't have a timber benefit? You might look at doing other things like opening up as part of a thinning, some patch cuts here and there, quarter acre, half acre. Um, And another thing that I look at differently sometimes, depending on what we're trying to do in that thinning relative to timber, sometimes we're trying to reduce crowding in the upper canopy where our best trees are competing with one another. We don't necessarily, if we're not if we're not looking out to the next stage of regenerating and the next treatment, we might not care as much about the mid-story where you have trees that aren't getting into the main canopy, or maybe they're in, you know, the upper canopy, but like the lower subordinate canopy positions. They're not really competing with some of the crop trees as far as timber's concerned, but how much light actually makes it to the ground, there can be a significant difference there. So if I'm looking at thinning a stand for whitetail deer specifically, I might be looking, you know, kind of in those mid-story or, or subordinate canopy positions where there's not much benefit to the timber for thinning it out, but I'm getting more light to the ground level. I'm getting more of that stuff that, <laughs> that deer like within uh, where they can reach. So, you know, that's that's there are a few ways that uh, you might go about it differently with whitetails in mind, but certainly as opposed to just, not thinning your woods at all and <laughs> always focusing on the residual condition of your forest and, and what's being left behind. Even if that's being done in light of timber management, it's a whole lot better than doing nothing.
1: Yeah, Tim, so you just lay out a ton of information. I think that's more information than most people have ever heard, at least as it relates to managing a forest setting for deer. And it's tough, right? Let's unpack that a little bit because there's a, there's a lot there. We're talking about successional plant communities, so young plant communities as, as a result of timbering because you're opening up the, uh, the canopy and allowing more sunlight to the floor, then you've got layers. So you talked about some understory trees, and then you talked about some dominating or co-dominating trees in the overstory. So there's kind of layers here. and Let's unpack that a little bit because layer one, I think right on the ground, we're working with those vegetation types to kind of influence and predict and allow more attractivity to certain animals and species that we want. And then part two, we're talking about kind of these understory trees that may have a shade component or food component. And then at the higher level, which you brought up oaks, and I think we'll have a separate podcast on oaks altogether, you know, they may have a mass sure. production element that's essentially important. So let's unpack that a little bit. So I like the idea of kind of opening up these quarter, half acre, one acre sections, depending on the size of your property, and managing it for kind of that young successional plant community but also keeping in some of that mix some variable diverse uh, plant plants. And I'm, I'm even talking trees and young saplings that are in there, right? So they're going to be the next generation of trees that rebound after you create this massive cutting. So can you maybe kind of unpack at least a little bit of, of the sequence of events uh, when you're going in and you're thinning and you're thinking about, and I'm not going to talk location specific, but what does it look like? How does it feel? You know, Explain the environment in those situations.
0: Sure. So, I mean, where it often starts is with an inventory or with a forest management plan. With some experience, it doesn't, you know, it isn't difficult to walk in and have it feel like the stand needs to be thin. But often my starting point is that I'm actually taking measurements, being able to quantify just how crowded a stand is and be able to say, does it need to be thin now? Or if not, when does it need to be thinned? Um, And then, you know, from there, I'm looking at developing a a prescription, deciding which trees to take and how many of them. Um, And really, again, focusing on what's being left behind uh, and then going out and marking trees um, relative to that uh, prescription uh, that that I've put forth on paper. And there's kind of a a target stocking level, as we say, you know, we're we're looking at reducing crowding. And it's like, okay, by how much? Because at a certain point, maybe it's not significant. And at another point, if you open up the stand too much or, you know, even if you can't hit the the target stocking level, but in a single cut, you cut too heavily on hardwood, you could have epicormic shoots on shallow rooted species. Like some hardwoods are like spruce. You could have blowdown. So there's there's a there's lots of different factors I'm thinking about there. Um, And I would say certainly the species mix, uh, what species you're working with, makes a big difference um, because we have what foresters use as stocking charts to say, you know, how crowded is the stand now and where do I want to bring it to? We have a different one for different species mixes or even if it's a pure species. Um, so the <laughs> uh, sorry for the long answer. I guess there is there is a, lo- a lot to unpack there. One thing is, um, I guess the, the phrase succession sometimes gets used in, in a few different ways. So I, I won't say it as a correction, but um, you know, typically the successional or seral stage is based on the composition and the species that are there. So when we go from an older forest to a younger forest, it might not really be considered a a successional change, but, you know, if we were to, you know, in some cases where you have commercial logging and you get more scarification on the ground, you start to get more, you know, what fall into that category of early successional plants. And I kind of draw the comparison there is because, you're getting ragweed and pokeweed and things like that that are really early successional plants coming in and you can get them. You're looking at getting a lot of protein during the summer. And if what's coming in is woody plants, you're really looking at like buds and and energy that are available during the winter. So, you know, could be looking at very different values there potentially.
1: Now, and that's a good point. So in in good correction with me, right? Because we're talking about uh, disruption on, on, on in the environment, right? And that disruption leads to a next serial stage as a result of us coming in and cutting timber or thinning timber for that matter. So the next plant communities that exist, hopefully they're resident uh, plant communities that we want, right? You may not know what you're going to get into, but in your case, you're saying that, you know, a lot of times you'll go in, you'll cut an area and... You know, the resultant plants that develop may have a particular benefit to wildlife at different times of the year. And in some cases, like in the summertime pokeweed, you know, you'll you'll notice a lot of browsing during different stages of that summer period into early fall. And then eventually some of the saplings that, that resprout from from the existing trees, you know, be, become really edible or more interested in maybe those later winter months. So there's kind of this balance that you're trying to create in this environment. It's kind of interesting to think about that where you're going to have just multiple food sources for deer throughout the year. And I, I think that's really one of the most critical things you, you can do. Uh, the another, other thing I want to uh, introduce to this is kind of this variability in, in, uh, in, in thinning densities and thinking about like the forest opening settings that we create. You know, we create these pockets and I may want deer to reside in those pockets for a long period of time. Um, when you have really big properties, you can kind of pie shape this thing and cut it and slice it in different ways. Well, I'm going to take from this slice of pie and then this slice of pie and this slice of pie. If you really got small land, uh, you don't really have an opportunity to have that same kind of sequence of events. So I'll go in and I'll say I'm going to prescribe this as a bedding area and I'm going to continue to cut that, continue to thin it, and and so it stays in a certain state, uh, and that really is productive. And And so to Tim's point, I think – of taking benefit of that really with these all these plant communities that by the way are free right you didn't have to pay necessarily in fact you may be making money off that and the net benefit is dear so to me that's a huge takeaway in this discussion and i i think i hopefully the the listenership will uh will will recognize that but uh you know tim i mean at least when it comes to site prep and marking trees you know what what kind of is your you know we're talking about a forest management plan and goals of that plan and a prescription And I think at some point we need to talk about different prescriptions and their benefits because, you know, even from sure. your, your side, you're way more advanced than I am in this area, uh, but those prescriptions lead to change, and those changes benefit absolutely the deer and other small mammals in those landscapes, including, you know, uh, insects, et cetera. So, you know, when it comes to kind of goal setting, how do you correlate the two And and in your prescriptions? Can you kind of describe that a little bit more?
0: Sure. So, a few things of, of course, I'm looking at what's underneath. And if I've got invasive plants, often we're looking at controlling those before giving them any light. So that that's one way we prioritize. We might look at which stand needs the most help because it's the highest stocking level. Uh, we might look at which is going to have the best benefit. You know, it's like that, that stand over there might be really, you know, it needs the thinning a little bit more, but that's maple and we're more interested in thinning the oak um, at this time. And, uh, one thing I liked that you touched on is the continued nature of sometimes going back in and managing places and sometimes on smaller properties, it is more intensive, but really you're, you're never done. And the way, you know, it, it often works with thinning <laughs> with, within reason is it's, you know, the heavier you cut, the longer you wait, you don't want to cut so heavily that you're over, you're understocked across the stand. But if you cut he- more heavily, you might wait longer before you thin. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you could do a little bit of light cutting every year and just kind of keep it at that lower desired stocking level. So, um, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's, a, I
1: think that's a takeaway right there. I think this continual maintenance and then thinning, uh, kind of in consecutive years or every few years to kind of maintain it in that state where you're getting the the type of production you want and utilization from the deer in that those particular, I think that's, that's actually probably the best takeaway in this whole discussion. I think sure. the maintenance aspect of it that work, you know, that relationship you have with the landscape is, is time-consuming. And I think a lot of people don't recognize the time and effort required. There's a knowledge base here that you're trying to transfer. And I, I really think, like, you're talking about spatial distribution of plants for a particular purpose. Uh, in some cases, it's, it, you know, if you have a big, usually big property, you may be doing some timber thinning, or pre-commercial thinning, right, to get a benefit for silviculture purposes and to harvest those timber uh, species at a later date. And in some cases, you may not care so much about that. So you kind of really got to break down your goals in these individual zones and have a purpose behind that. And, uh, you know, this this is kind of a, a really good takeaway for me is establishing zones and then describing the benefit and purpose of that zone uh, as it meets to a prescription like that you come up with or a goal that I come up with as a landowner. Uh, so I think that's a that's a great takeaway.
0: Sure. And one thing I would encourage listeners to do if they uh, own land with forest is if you're not sure what's growing there, or what it's worth, potentially contact a, a forester and get some help there. But as far as some of this other stuff, it can get it can get a little bit complicated when we want to tiller it to that property. But at the same time, it doesn't always have to be that complicated. If you, you know, one method that, I often recommend to landowners who want to get into it and start doing things themselves and know that it's a benefit and that they're not just messing things up is the crop tree release method. You might not know what the residual density is or what even what a stocking chart is, but you know enough to know, you know, that's a really nice healthy looking tree with an even crown and it's straight and it it looks like a nice tree and I'm going to open it up. Or, you know, we've got just a few oak trees scattered through our woodlot, you know, go open them up on two sides, go, you know, two sides of the crown, give them some more sunlight. And you can expect that after, you know, a couple years of getting that extra sunlight, they'll produce better as far as acorns go. And uh, sometimes some very nicely managed woodlots. It's um, not necessarily that they came in every 15 years and did an aggressive treatment, but that somebody's cutting a fi- firewood for their own use every year and they're picking the right trees and I don't mean they're picking the right trees to cut, which they are, but I mean they're picking the right trees to say that's that's a crop tree right there, and I'm going to go cut that one next to it that isn't offering me as much. So yeah. there is a, a good deal you can do as, lo- <laughs> as long as, uh, you know, you don't go too crazy without forethought. There is a lot that can be done without, you know, a whole, uh, a, a whole lot of um, – intensive, you know, measurement taken and management planning. Um, certainly, I recommend the forest management plan route, but the, there often is a lot you can just go out and do on your own if you can identify a crop tree.
1: Yeah, I like that takeaway. Go in and release, you know, some areas around that tree, reduce the amount of species that it's competing with to give it a little more sunlight and see what the net result is. You know, that's that's I think that's a great yeah. takeaway for everybody. All right, Tim, well, we took yeah. a lot of your time today. I appreciate the input. Uh, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you?
0: Sure. My website is greenfireforestry.com. All my contact information is there. So you can reach me at Tim at com or check out my website. Got my, my phone number up there and all that. You can shoot me a message through my website. So be happy to hear from
1: you. Yeah, and Tim, we're going to have you on a bunch of times, right? You're a continual guest for us with with other people, and uh, we're going to have, I'm going to ask a lot more questions, I think, next time. I think this is a good introduction. I learned a lot. Uh, I know, I think uh, a lot of people did gain a lot from this, and, uh, you know, looking forward to have you on uh, in uh, in the next episode. So, appreciate it.
0: So do I. All right. Thanks, John.
1: Everybody, thanks. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information
0: on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.